Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Today, I'm going to talk about self-disclosure. But first, I want to read an email from patron Kate. She writes, Hi, Kirk. I am a proud patron of the podcast, and I'm also a graduate student getting my MSW. I was wondering if you could do an episode on disclosure. I'm doing my second-year internship at a well-known psychiatric hospital, and my supervisor really frowns on on disclosure. I find, I find myself struggling with this a lot. It's not that I want to bring the conversation back to me, but I want to relate to the patients as fellow human beings and to let them know someone really does understand and that they aren't alone. I get that one could potentially do this without disclosing anything, but it feels unnatural and not nearly as effective as, as self-disclosure. I'd be really interested to hear your process of deciding and why you don't want your clients to know certain things about you but are okay with them knowing others? Um, She asks a few other questions here. Do you ever find it hard to hold back from relating? Or I'm guessing she's asking, do I to hold back from self-disclosing about my experience? Do you have any stories from when you ended up regretting sharing or not sharing something? What do you do when clients ask you about yourself? Do you correct them when they've assumed something about you that isn't true? Has self-disclosure ever worked in your favor or have been uh, held against you? For example, do you find that struggling parents tend to like knowing they are seeing a therapist who has kids as well? Any thoughts or musings you have on this complex topic of disclosure would be much appreciated. Also, patron Alexandra wrote in, she is a tattoo artist, and she finds that when she self-discloses to her clients, her clients relax significantly. So she also wanted me to talk about self-disclosure. Yeah, there's a lot of misinformation out there, apparently. Um, When I talk with people about this, particularly trainees and supervisees, novice therapists, I almost never hear them say things that make sense to me. They they often will tell me things and I'll, I'll say, like, where did you learn that from? And they'll be like, they'll be like, oh, well, you know, five professors told me this or you know, three supervisors told me this and I'll just be like, man, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And the thing is, is there's actually a lot of empirical studies on self-disclosure. There's a lot of research and science that has looked into the effectiveness of self-disclosure and the qualities of good self-disclosure and the qualities of bad self-disclosure. So it's not like there isn't good research and literature out there. So it's it's a bit of there's to me in my anecdotal experience there's a huge gap between the consensus and the research and what is often taught to students and to supervisees. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. I'm going to talk, so self-disclosure to, for those of you that aren't in the biz is basically when a therapist reveals something about themselves to their clients. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. We're going to talk about the definitions, the typologies, the research. Is it helpful? Is it harmful? What do I do? What do I tell my supervisees to do? And I'm also at the end going to provide my guidelines regarding self-disclosure based on the research and my own experience. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, 
Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. This episode is just for patrons of the podcast, so if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast yet, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. When you become a patron, you'll get access to hundreds of patron-exclusive episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics like this topic of self-disclosure. And when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials. And remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. So let me just provide some examples from my practice. These are just off the top of my head, things that I have I've said similar things to this probably many, many times. So the first thing here is, I know from personal experience that grief can sometimes last a lifetime. And I might discuss a little bit more about that. So if I have a client who is suffering from grief and is judging themselves because they're like, how come I can't get over this grief? Uh, it's, it's likely that I'm going to say something along the lines of, you know, I know from personal experience that although society doesn't like to talk about this, grief lasts sometimes forever, or at least a lot longer than society uh, likes to think it does. You know, take it from me. I, I know that. So I'm not talking about a particular grief in my life. I'm not revealing anything super personal, but I am revealing to the client that I have suffered from very long-term grief. And and in a sense, I guess what I'm saying is I'm still suffering from grief. So so that's definitely a self-disclosure. Another thing that uh, I might say if a, a couple were to come in and they were to talk about their conflict. And so when couples come in and they talk about their conflict, which is almost, you know, a, it's a very frequent thing that they want help with. And one of the major things that I do with clients is try to help them to think straight in the midst of conflict and try to notice the signs and the triggers and try to uh, be very careful about not falling into the same habitual pattern. And so at a certain point, they'll, they'll probably indicate to me that they feel demoralized that it's not working right away because it takes for most of my couples, it takes months to see results with a reduction in conflict. It takes a long time because it's a very pernicious problem. Pernicious? Stubborn problem. Yes. Being stubborn is a very stubborn problem. <laughs> and so at some point, I want to normalize that process. I want to tell them, look, you know, I I know from personal experience that it's nearly impossible to think straight when you're in the middle of a conflict with a spouse. I know that from personal experience. So I'm not asking you guys to do anything um, that is beyond the capabilities of humans. But I am asking that, and I, but I am telling you that if we work on this, we're probably going to, if we take baby steps, we're probably going to see some results down, down the road. So again, in that self-disclosure, I'm saying, I know from personal experience that it's very hard to think straight during a conflict. So what am I revealing there? Well, I'm revealing that I've been in conflict before. And, I, and I'm revealing that I have a hard time thinking straight when I'm in the middle of a conflict. So that's a you know, very uh, distinct self-disclosure. Here's another one. So if I'm talking to a teenager, I might say something like, well, you know, when I was in middle school, I remember feeling terrified about being humiliated in front of my classmates. So in this self-disclosure, I'm telling the, the teenager that I felt afraid 
And what I'm trying to do is perhaps normalize fear, normalize the fear of humiliation, normalize, um, you know, try to make this person feel not alone and also maybe open the door to talk about it or that sort of thing. So, so those are some very common self-disclosures or sorts of self-disclosures that I will make in, in my practice. Okay, but we'll get into more other kinds of um, disclosures in a second here, but let's talk about some definitions. There are many definitions in the literature, uh, for instance, but there's, there's kind of two main ones. For instance, uh, number one, verbal statements that reveal something personal about the therapist. So verbal statements, things you say, that reveal something personal about the therapist. So pretty general. Number two, subtle verbal and nonverbal communication about you as a person and your attitudes. So this one's a little bit more foggy. So subtle verbal and subtle nonverbal communication about you as a person and your attitudes. So this is is harder to evaluate, right? Because you might not even know you're revealing those things about your attitudes or your or your personality. I mean, people out there who have been in therapy before, think about one of your therapists and think about what you found out about them personally that they didn't necessarily want or they didn't necessarily volunteer to you. You know, did they have a wedding ring? Did they, uh, at the end of a session when things were getting a little loose, did they just accidentally reveal something, you know, like, oh, I got to go. I got to go to the hospital because my dad's in the hospital later, you know, and it, it seemed like it wasn't like a planned self-disclosure or something. You know, there, there are subtle ways in which therapists will reveal things about themselves. Also, another part of self-disclosure is what we call immediacy or self-involving disclosures. In other words, it's, it's a therapeutic technique, immediacy is, where immediately we reveal to our clients how we are feeling and our reaction to the client. The idea is, is that it helps the client understand their effect on other people and also might facilitate a deepening of the therapeutic relationship. So a client is talking about their grief, for instance, and I might, in the vein of immediacy, I might say something like, wow, that's making me feel really sad. Or if a client is talking over me or something and being annoying to me, I might say, um, so I just want to let you know, like the way you're talking over me, it's sort of getting on my nerves. <laughs> now, again, these are all uh, attempts to further the therapeutic goal and, or the, you know, at least one of the objectives. And so, um, so, so those are self-disclosures as well. Okay. So what about the prevalence? You know, how, how often do therapists self-disclose? Well, there's been a fair amount of research on this, and there's a lot of stats, but I'm only going to talk about a few of them because it, 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 the list can go on and on. But according to research, over 90% of therapists report they disclose personal information to their clients. So again, the vast majority, 90% plus of therapists report that they disclose personal information to their clients. So the vast majority of therapists self-disclose. It's just, you know, one of those things. Now, to what degree that is a, you know, something that differs among therapists, but, you know, the vast majority say they do use self-disclosure for one reason or another. 
when they actually observe therapist sessions, when they actually observe therapy sessions, and they code the different interventions that the you know basically the different um, moves that a therapist makes, they find that four percent of therapist interventions in individual therapy are self disclosures. So that's pretty interesting. So when someone sits down and watch, watches actual sessions with a with a therapist with a client, and they you know they take chunks that we call them interventions, but they're basically like chunks of of motivation that a therapist uh, in you know embodies in behavior, and so it, different moments shall we say, and what they find is four percent of those moments involve self disclosures. So that's, you know, that's not, it's not all the time, obviously, but it's, you know, frequent, I would say. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, you know, it really depends on the theoretical orientation, and it does. For example, humanistic experiential therapists tend to disclose a lot more, and psychoanalytic therapists tend to self-disclose a lot less. But there's a lot of variance between that, too. Um, and the research shows that there's, there's no difference in gender. So among male and female therapists, they tend to self-disclose at the same rates. And there's also seemingly no difference between racial or ethnic groups. So, um, you know, it, it's probably a, that's probably a product of the research in terms of looking at a particular, uh, I'm, I'm guessing those are American therapists, but anyway. Okay. So what about other research? What, what does the research say about um, the effectiveness of self-disclosure? Well, the research didn't really start in earnest until the 1990s, which is you know kind of interesting, given that psychotherapy and self-disclosure, talk about self-disclosure has been happening since Freud, and yet the research into, you know, is this helpful, is it not, didn't really happen until the 1990s. But since the 1990s, there's, there's been a fair amount of research, and there's actually some famous figures who have, have looked into it um, and publish routinely on self-disclosure. Um, and there have been many effects, positive effects that have been found to self-disclosure. So empirical science has found that when therapists use self-disclosure well, that the clients tend to rate the therapist as much more helpful. The client tends to have much more insight. There is an improved therapeutic relationship there are higher ratings from the client about the therapist's trustworthiness. There are higher ratings of clients saying that they are hopeful for the future. There is increased client disclosure. So as you disclose as a therapist, clients tend to disclose more. And there's also a reduced rate of client dropout. So I just want to, I just want to reiterate these, these things because anyone who says like, patron um patron kate's supervisor any anyone who frowns at um self-disclosure i just have to say they have no idea what they're talking about because it, it has been shown time and time again again when you use it well and effectively which i'll get into more in a, in a bit but when you use self-disclosure well it has a lot of positive effects and therefore if you're frowning on self-disclosure, then you're frowning on effectiveness and you're frowning on something that can improve outcomes. And why would you do that? 
you know, it's, 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 it really boggles the mind. I just, I don't, misinformation, bad education, uh, not enough awareness. I don't know. But, uh, or just a general, I don't know, sort of uh, paternal attitude about being stoic or something, you know, and, or, or trying to be quote unquote professional. I I think there's a, a, there's a lot of um, factors that play into the, the, because the thing to me that I always think is, it's like, well, obviously these people don't know what they're talking about, uh, but why do they fill in the void of their knowledge with this notion that it's bad to self-disclose? And again, I've heard this from so many different people. I'll talk to a supervisee. This, this just happened to me like a few times today. I was talking with supervisees, different, separate trainees, separate supervisees, and, and they'd be like, well, you know, I know you're not really supposed to self-disclose, but I, you know, I was just really wondering, and I, I was like, wait, 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 wait. What did you just say? They're like, well, yeah, I, I know that you know you're you're not supposed to self-disclose because you know it's not ethical. And I was like, wait a second, who taught you that you're not supposed to self-disclose? Who who told you that? And they're like, oh, you know, several people. And I'm just like, how does this get out there? And again, I, I think it's just like it's it's easier to have a rule than to think about the nuances of therapy. So I think that's part of it. I also think that people really want to stay on the safe side or something, and they're afraid to stick their neck out, which self-disclosing, I have to tell you, is not sticking your neck out, particularly in you know, the consensus among the experts in psychotherapy. Self-disclosure is a wonderful thing. I've never seen in the literature the sorts of cautions that I see in the community around self-disclosure. It's really weird. Anyway, um, I guess it could, anyway, I'll get into the history about where we come from and why we might have those bad attitudes. But anyway, so again, many positive effects, higher ratings of helpfulness, enhanced client insight, improved therapeutic relationship, higher ratings of therapist trustworthiness, enhanced client hope, increased client disclosure and reduced client dropout. Those are wonderful things. Okay. So let's go into the history a little bit. Now I'm going to, as whenever I get into the history of psychotherapy, I'm going to truncate things significantly. So just know that this is just a very general overview of the last 150 years of this sort of stuff. But of course, all roads lead back to Freud and, and his followers, and they had a kind of a complicated view of self-disclosure and they said various different things, but the consensus that emerged, uh, particularly in the in the Freudians that the you know classical psychoanalysts who existed after Freud died, they tended psychoanalysis in the early days tended to say, well, you don't want to self disclose anything as a as an analyst because it it contaminates the ability for the client to transfer onto you. So the whole the, the main idea of psychoanalysis back in the day, it's not so much anymore, but back in the day was that you wanted the client to transfer their parents onto you as the analyst. And the more they knew about you, the harder it was for them to do that. Because the more you became a real human being, the less easy it was for them to to project onto you the things that they needed to in order to grow. So there's that. Freud also said at times that the more we disclose as therapists, the less the client will disclose, which is actually not um, accurate in terms of the research. But again, back in Freud's day, they didn't have the resources or the decades of 
of history to research this sort of thing. So they're, they're kind of left to their own anecdotal and uh, information and their own musings. Okay, so that's Freud and, and a lot of his people. Ferenzi often comes up as a major figure who started off psychotherapy. And although Ferenzi was loyal to Freud, he, he proposed more self-disclosure. He, he thought that being a blank screen was too aloof and was too cold and you want to be a little warm. There's a lot of things that Ferenzi said back in the day that is very contemporary and that's one of them. Okay, skipping forward a number of decades to Winnicott, he proposed that therapists should increase self-disclosure with clients who might have a have a hard time connecting. So he found that when he worked with particularly uh, difficult clients or clients who were very uh, distrustful of their therapist, he Winnicott found that when he self-disclosed, it actually helped them to open up. But he also basically said there's really no reason to self-disclose to other clients. And so he wasn't really... Uh, in line with the contemporary understanding in the literature. Skipping forward to Fairburn, uh, or at the same time as Winnicott Fairburn, with clients, he, he, he said that with, with, with people who are emotionally rejected as children, so if we have an adult who came from a family in which they were very much emotionally rejected, self-disclosure can help with them. Because when, so basically what he was saying was, look, if you have a client who was, rejected and kept at arm's length by their parents, and then you proceed as a therapist to keep them at arm's length, then that just further traumatizes them. So you can't do that. So you have to let them in and you have to start self-disclosing, become warmer with them. Uh, But he also said that there are some clients who pathologically seek gratification through gaining information about their their therapist. And he said that self-disclosure in that situation can actually perpetuate the problem. Okay, going forward to Harry Stack Sullivan, he proposed he, he was a very um, he was a very very much ahead of his time a collaborative family therapist uh, in the early days and he proposed a much more equal partnership with clients and therefore much more self-disclosure Kohut uh, was more in the classical Freudian uh, viewpoint and believed in very limited self-disclosure and unless you made an obvious mistake, then he said, you know, if, if you made an obvious mistake as a therapist, then you should probably self-disclose that. But in general, Kohut was, uh, at least on paper, he, was, he didn't emphasize self-disclosure. Uh, later, psychodynamic therapists, relational therapists, they were much more focused on the relationship. And therefore, they started to really... Uh, discuss self-disclosure in a very detailed way. And, and they started to consider self-disclosure as a main element of the therapeutic action and therapy. Because when therapists talk about themselves strategically, they can deepen their relationship and they can uh, facilitate more vulnerability between the client and the therapist, which according to relational dynamic, brief dynamic therapist is, is a main objective of therapy. Okay. Around the same time, we're looking at Aaron Beck and Albert Ellis of cognitive therapy, REBT. And many people would think, well, Aaron Beck, you know, of cognitive therapy, cognitive therapy, they don't self-disclose, right? Well, Beck and Ellis actually recommended self-disclosing as a way of educating the client. So they, they didn't, they weren't so concentrated on the relationship, on the relationship with the therapist, 
therapist and client. They were focused on like, look, you as a therapist hopefully have gained wisdom and knowledge over the years. And you can, you can, through your own experiences, teach your clients things about, about the treatment, you know, and about how things are going to go and about emotional regulation and all that kind of stuff. So feel free to, um, you know, self-disclose in that way as a way of educating your clients. Okay. So that brings us up to today. And later, you know, again, since the 1990s, there's, there's been a fair amount of research among a, you know, cadre of researchers, um, all of them basically in the camp that proposes that the relationship between the therapist and the client is the most important factor in outcomes. And self-disclosure is a, is one of the, the components that facilitates the, the strengthening of that relationship. So in addition to self-disclosure, you got positive regard and empathy and asking for feedback and repairing ruptures all of those factors play into enhancing the therapeutic relationship. And so self-disclosure today is a part of that literature. And to some extent, it ha- has been effectively divorced from any particular theoretical orientation. There was a time when self-disclosure was sort of owned by particular theoretical approaches. But today, in the literature anyway, it's it said, look, this is a common factor across all therapies. It doesn't matter what theoretical orientation you are using. The relationship is very, very important. And self-disclosure is a part of that. Okay. So there's been a number of, of typologies that have been proposed. There's been a lot of, you know, people trying to categorize the different sorts of self-disclosures. For example, uh, one typology involves four different types. Uh, one, disclosure of facts. Two, disclosure of feelings. Three, disclosure of insights. And four, disclosure of strategies. So one, disclosure of facts. So those are things like, I got my degree from Antioch University. Or I have children. Or I am a lesbian cisgender female. You know, these are, these are facts and you're disclosing them. Number two, disclosure of feelings. Like, you know, when I've been in that situation, I, I get really angry or I'm really sad to hear that you're going through that. So those are disclosures of therapist feelings. Number three, disclosures of insights. For example, when I was in college, like you, I realized that I felt guilty for leaving my parents home alone. So that's you're you're disclosing as a therapist, you're disclosing an insight or Sometimes after a fight with my spouse, I regret some of the things that I said. So again, it's a, you're disclosing an insight in an attempt to further the objective. Number four, disclosures of strategies. For example, when I was in that situation, I forced myself to get out of bed and face the world. Or when I fight with my spouse, I try to slow down and not say anything in anger. So those are just examples of disclosing strategies. Okay, another, another typology involves the intent. You know, what's the intent of the disclosure? And some, some authors refer to two different kinds of intent. One is the reassuring intent, and the other one is the challenging intent. So an example of a, of a reassuring intent would be, you know what, I've been there before, and I know how that feels. So you're trying to reassure the client, look, I get it, I'm with you, and your feelings are normal. 
The other intent is a challenging intent. So for instance, you know, I've been there before and in the end, I decided that that was not my fault. So in this instance, this example that I came up with, it's like, if I noticed that a client was self shaming themselves and was having a hard time not shaming themselves, I might say something like, you know what? I've, I've been in that situation and I had an impulse to shame myself, but in the end I decided, look, that's not my fault. And I let myself off the hook. So I'm self-disclosing, but, but, and I'm, but I'm not necessarily trying to reassure. My main point is I'm trying to challenge their way of thinking. Okay, other types or dimensions of self-disclosure that are in the literature are like there's a spectrum of the amount of information you, you disclose. So there's some disclosures that involve very little disclosure of your personal information, and there's some disclosures that involve a lot. Another dimension is the level of intimacy. So how intimate is this disclosure and how, in, how much intimacy is sort of required for that disclosure? Also, another dimension is how much time do you spend as you disclose? And this is a major thing that I'm going to get into later, but you know, a disclosure can take half a second or it can take half a session. And so it's just another thing to think about. Okay, so... What I came, I, I came up with my own, my own categories here. And so number one are things you disclose on purpose. So these are things like uh, you, you tell people, you want to tell people things to help them out in treatment, you know, so uh, the kinds of examples I've given so far. So, um, so those are, you know, things I disclose as a therapist on purpose to facilitate the treatment. The second category are things that I disclose on accident. You know, maybe I blurt out a, a political view or um, I verbally reveal something about myself that was unplanned. And then later I'm like, wait, why did I, why did I reveal that? You know, so, so those are accidental disclosures. Number three are things you automatically disclose no matter what. Like you, you disclose the way that you look, you disclose the way that you talk, you disclose the way that you dress, you disclose your skin tone, you disclose your office, you disclose whether or not you have a wedding ring on, you disclose the sort of furniture you like, you disclose um, you know, the, the, whether or not you use Gmail or Yahoo or something, right? There's... There, there are a lot of disclosures that you automatically disclose that, that, you know, say something about you. The way that you dress says something about you. Do you dress in a way that, that says, hey, I'm a relaxed person? Or do you dress in a way that says, hey, I'm a formal person? For example, for me, for the most part, I dress very, pretty casually. I mean, it's sort of business casually, but it's definitely on the casual end of business casual. You know, I wear a good pair of jeans. <laughs> Let's just put it, you know, like I, my, my Nordstrom jeans. And I wear like a, a, you know, just either a button up short sleeve shirt or maybe even sometimes just a, just a black t-shirt or a red polo or something. And so, um, I, and another thing is, is that I wear sandals, soccer sandals, Adidas soccer sandals uh, all the time because I'm Japanese and we always wear those and they're very comfortable. But when I'm inside, I don't wear my, I don't wear shoes when I, cause I practice out of my house. So I don't, I don't wear like dress shoes. I'm just walking around my house, 
plus it's not comfortable. And when I sit down with my clients, I've always done this. I, I always immediately take off my sandals because I don't even want those on my feet. <laughs> so there I am in session with my clients, just with my socks. And some people think that's disgusting, but I, I don't. As a Japanese person, I'm very, very comfortable with people not having their shoes on. But anyway, so, so that's something that I automatically disclose just by the way that I hold myself and the way that I dress and everything. Yeah, people come to my home, I disclose where I live. I disclose what my house looks like. I disclose the car I drive. I disclose the kind of art that's in my house, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay, and number four, things that I disclose that I'm not aware of. There are things that my clients pick up about me or, or at least think they know about me that I don't even know that I'm revealing. So they might be talking about something and I'll, I'll give off an emotional vibe and I didn't even know I did that. Uh, or I might reveal how tired I am on that particular day. Or there might be stuff on the internet that I don't know about. Now, I will periodically Google myself as a way of making sure there's nothing on the internet that I don't want on there. But but research shows a lot of therapists don't do that. And so... Um, for clients who Google you, you know, you might accidentally, or you might, re you might be revealing things that you're not aware of that you're revealing. Okay. So those are the different kinds of dimensions and typologies worth, worth thinking about. Another thing to think about is feminism and postmodernism and collaborative therapies and that kind of stuff. So let me just go on a riff here. You know, we live in a patriarchal society in meaning that, it's male-dominated, it's, it's male-identified, and male-centered. Men dominate positions of authority within politics, the law, within religion, within education, within the military, the police, the economy, often the household, you know, in terms of money, in the, in the, medicine, in the medicine industry, in, in, the, in business, on TV, and so... So there are exceptions to this, you know, statement, but, but, you know, men dominate and that that's the, that's the definition of patriarchal society. Things are getting better for sure. And uh, things are a lot worse than other societies, but, but we still, it's still patriarchal. Uh, just look at the Senate, just look at the presidency, just look at, you know, there, there's certain things that you can just say, okay, well, we, we clearly still live in a, in a patriarchal society. Therefore we, tend to consider masculine traits to be better. Uh, both men and women will privilege masculine traits over feminine traits. You know, things like being strong, uh, not being emotional, being logical, right? So these are, these are considered masculine traits. Now, they're not associated scientifically with men. You know, men are not, quote-unquote, stronger than women, and men are not, quote-unquote, more logical than women. But those are things associated with men and therefore masculinity and, their, and therefore it's privileged because we live in a patriarchal society. On the other hand, feminine qualities are devalued, things like vulnerability and emotional expressiveness. Again, men and women can be just as vulnerable as, he, as anyone else, doesn't matter about gender, and emotional expressiveness can, can exist within men and women, if we're thinking of the binary. But femini you know, uh, femininity is associated with vulnerability and emotional expressiveness. I mean, just think about how when we say, oh, my God, I was crying like a little girl. You know, we don't say, oh, my God, I was crying like an old man. <laughs> you know, um, we, we have ways of, of associating those sorts of things. Okay. So since our field 
exists, you know, the field of psychotherapy, since our field exists within this patriarchal society, it makes sense that the field of psychotherapy would also be patriarchal. And it is. We exhibit these biases. This is probably one of those factors that causes a lot of trainers and supervisors to say that they frown on self-disclosure because they're basically adhering to the patriarchal notions. You know, be strong, provide rational science-based treatment when, and they don't understand that science-based treatment actually involves self-disclosure. So feminists will uh, actually propose, look, self-disclosure helps in a lot of ways it could, because it equalizes the power and the therapeutic relationship. Feminism as a field is very interested in power and the instruments of power and the maintaining of power and, and uh, attempting to dismantle that. Because as you dismantle power, especially where you don't need it, then things, people are freer and, and justice occurs. So as you self-disclose with your clients, you are uh, providing a just environment for a client to feel as though they're not, a, they're not strange for having, um, for having emotions. You know, so if you follow the, the blank screen uh, ideal as a therapist, you're basically giving the impression that you don't have emotions and the client does. And you're talking about the client's emotions and blah, blah, blah. And then you're not self-disclosing anything. So basically you're creating this environment where it makes it look like the client is different by having emotions. And so when you self-disclose your emotions, you're basically saying, look, we're on the same playing field here. We're both human beings and we both have emotions and there's nothing wrong with you. And, and I don't have any power over you by, by proposing that I don't have emotions. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no better than you are. You know, I'm no stronger. I'm, I'm no blah, blah, blah. Um, so there's a lot of reasons and the feminist literature talks a lot about this, but also the postmodernist literature, um, the collaborative therapies, they'll, they'll talk about, look, so you gotta, you gotta demote the therapist because you want to empower the client. You want to put the client in the driver's seat. And one of the ways that you do that is to make sure that the client doesn't consider you to be a God. And one of the ways you make sure the client understands you're not a God is by self-disclosing your foibles. Okay, so we heard about some of the research uh, benefits, but what are just some general benefits of self-disclosing? Well, the main thing is is that it can improve the relationship. When, when you self-disclose as a therapist, it can deepen and strengthen the relationship, the alliance and the attachment. And the relationship, as we all know, is the most important element in effective, th- in effective therapy. And so, um, and self-disclosure could be a part of that relationship. Self-disclosing normalizes people's feelings. It models how to process feelings. It conveys empathy. It, pro- it provides congruency. For, for example, when you are having a feeling or you're having some kind of experience, some kind of reaction to something, and it's sort of, you know, the client is picking up on it. If you don't disclose it, it can be kind of crazy making to the to the client, right? So the client say is talking about something really sad that's touching on some sadness of yours. And you're getting a little watery eyes, you know, you're you're starting to tear up a little bit. Not not full on tears, but you know, a little water in your eyes. And the client 
you know, is looking at you and you just ignore it. You just, you're just like, you know, I don't self-disclose. I don't talk about myself. Well, the client's sitting there going, so, or, or, you know, maybe the client says, are you okay? And, and the therapist says, yeah, I'm fine. Why? Why are you asking? Well, this is a crazy making situation that a lot of clients come from families that drove them crazy in this way by not being congruent. And so it's actually kind of a mental mind screw to do that to a client. So to, to, to avoid that harm to a client, it's probably a good idea to, to say what you're feeling. So you're getting a little teary eyed and and client says, Oh, are are you okay? And you say, you just say, yeah, you know what? Your story just makes me a little sad. And I'm, I'm, I'm I'm tearing up a little bit, but I'm okay. You know, please continue. So that provides congruency, which is very important, you know, very Rogerian. Also self-disclosing can provide other ways of thinking and feeling and acting to clients. You can, you can say, look, I've been there and here's what I did and, or I've been there and here's how I felt about it and that kind of thing. And also, as I talked about earlier, immediacy can help clients see how they affect people. So if you, you know, say, Hey, you know what? You're getting a little loud. And when you do that, I just have to say, I I feel intimidated by you. (laughs) Uh, You know, just, just throwing it out there. So you're, you're helping clients understand their effect on other people. Okay, so what are my guidelines for self-disclosure? Now, these are my guidelines. They're not other people's guidelines. I've seen a number of guidelines proposed in the literature, and none of them really resonate with me. They tend to be, I don't know, just they just don't make a lot of sense to me. Uh, a lot of the research does make sense, but whenever they get to the guidelines section, I'm always like, huh, doesn't, doesn't resonate. It's like they're too simple or something. Anyway. But, but my guidelines are based on the research. It's just not based on the guidelines research, if that makes any sense. Okay. So number one, number one guideline to self-disclosure is you have to ask yourself, is it helpful? You know, all my supervisees, all my trainees know my number one prime directive is, is it helpful? This is the most important thing to think about whenever you're doing anything, because people get real bogged down, like, well, what are the rules of self-disclosure? And what I always say is, is it helpful? And then they sit, then they ask me, well, how do I know if it's helpful? And then I said, that's up to you. (laughs) You know, that's your clinical judgment. You, you have to figure out what that is, you know? Um, so another way of putting this is, does the predict, does the predicted benefit outweigh the predicted harm or does the predicted benefit justify the predicted harm or something. So you're trying, so as you're evaluating the self-disclosure in your mind, you're thinking, okay, when, if I do this, what do I predict the benefit will be? And what I, what, and if there's going to be a harm to it, what do I predict that will be? And, and, you know, does the predicted benefit justify the predicted harm? So that's a, that's the main, that's the main guideline right there. That's, that's, that's a, now that's a tough one to answer. You know, and some of you, some of you might be thinking, well, that doesn't help me because how do I know? I, I can't predict the future. How do I know? Well, I'll get more into that in a second. Okay. Number two, does it facilitate the treatment plan? You know, what goal are you working towards? You should be able to, to justify if, if, you know, say you made a disclosure in a session and directly afterwards, a lawyer came to you and said, why did you make that disclosure? You should be able to justify it. 
You know, you should be able to tie it to the treatment plan somehow. Even if it's something like increased self-esteem, you should be able to articulate in a note or to a lawyer, you know, why you, you made that self-disclosure. You, sh- you shouldn't uh, self-disclose unless you can do that. And sometimes that takes a lot of practice. You have to learn how to justify your actions. That's actually a learned skill. It's not something that you just get automatically as a therapist. Number three, the disclosure have the predicted outcome. So after you do it, you want to say, well, what happened? You know, what was, the, what was the benefit? What was the harm? And then you want to evaluate it and adjust. Number four, are you comfortable with others knowing about this? This is a very important question that I don't see in the literature often enough. You know, just because it's helpful to self-disclose something doesn't mean that you need to disclose it, you know? When you self-disclose something to a, to a client, they are under no obligation to keep that a secret. They can tell anyone they want. They can blog about it. They can announce to the world what you told them. So if if I tell a client that, you know, I have, you know, like the disclosure I said earlier in terms of like, you know what, from personal experience, let me tell you, grief can last forever. So, you know, am I comfortable with a client, you know, worst case scenario, a client goes home and tweets, you know, my therapist, Kirk Honda said that he knows from personal experience that grief can last forever. So, I have given that a lot of thought prior to ever saying those things, and I know that I don't mind everyone knowing about that. So, so you don't want to reveal stuff that you w- will lie awake at night worrying ab- about other people knowing. Now, the chance of a client announcing these things on the internet and the chance that anyone would ever even read it is pretty slim. So, so it's not so much. That's probably you know an exaggerated question, but but I've talked with. In fact, I was just talking with a consultee on Monday about this, and she was saying, because she revealed something quite personal to her, to a client, in an attempt to help. And later when we were talking, she's like, you know, I'm not quite sure if I am comfortable with anyone knowing that about me. In fact, there's there's only a handful of people that that know about that, you know? And so, you know, you just want to, make sure that you're comfortable with it. If you're not comfortable, you know, when in doubt, don't just don't do it because you don't want to take the risk there. Number five, is the disclosure mostly resolved? This is a very important thing. Research shows that when a, you know, if the thing that you disclose has to be for the most part resolved, meaning that when you talk about it, it doesn't come out raw and emotional. So, you know, if, if you, um, are in the midst of a very painful divorce and you're talking with an individual client and you're, and you're like, you know what? I'm going through a divorce right now. And my God, it is painful. And then you start to cry and, you know, the, and the client really picks up on the fact that, wow, you're having a moment right now. Now, depending on the objective, in all likelihood, that's, that's not going to help because the client now feels bad for you the client is now worried about you and the client might not want to disclose things in the future because they don't want to remind you of your problem. And so that's a major thing. You need to make sure that it's properly resolved. And again, when in doubt, don't take the risk. If, if you're like, mm, I, th- I think I'm mostly okay with disclosing this, you know, unless you're sure, just don't bother because it's not worth it. 
Number six is, is the disclosure about you. So, you know, make sure that as you are about to self-disclose that you're not just using this opportunity to vent something that you would better off be telling your, your own therapist. So make sure that it's not about you. Make sure it's, it's truly in service of the, of the treatment. Number seven, make it as short as possible. This is very important. You know, you just want to go in and out. The examples that I've given today are very short, right? You know, like, like the one I keep saying, Take it from me, from personal experience, man. I know grief can last forever. That takes, how long did it take me to say a sentence? Like four seconds? Very short, just in and out. Not, and not a lot of detail. I'm not going into super detail about what particular grief I'm talking about or what my particular things, but I'm, but I'm self-disclosing. It's very quick because it gets right back to the client, okay? Number eight, and the last one is contemplate your disclosures. Just overall, you need to have like a, like an ongoing contemplative practice regarding your disclosures. You want to think about it. You want to consult. You want to do, uh, you want to do a lit review, look into some research. You want to potentially even ask your clients for feedback. You know, say like, so today I just, I self-disclose a couple of things. How do you feel about that? You know, just, just ask for feedback. Okay. So those are my guidelines. Again, is it helpful? Does it facilitate the treatment plan? Did the disclosure have the predicted outcome? Are you comfortable with others knowing about this? Is the disclosure mostly resolved? Is the disclosure mostly about you and not the client? Um, is the disclosure as short as possible? And make sure you contemplate your disclosures, you know, your, your, your system of disclosures. Okay. Um, another note here is that when you work with children and teens, I find that myself and other therapists tend to self-disclose a lot more. You know, I I've, I've, I've talked about this a lot and I never find a good explanation as to why that is, but I'm here to tell you that it, it it's almost impossible to be in a, to be an effective child or, or adolescent therapist without self-disclosing. It's just, it's just one of those things that you just, you just feel compelled to do. And I think it's because a lot of children and teens are extremely uncomfortable when they come to therapy. You know, when a, when a 45 year old comes to my office, they're pretty comfortable and, you know, they know their way around a conversation and they're, they're paying good money for it and they've given a lot of thought and they like therapy. Well, a 12 year old isn't usually like that. And so self-disclosure can really make someone feel a lot more comfortable, you know? You can even say something like, you know what? When I was 12, my parents forced me to go to therapy too, and I hated it. <laughs> you know? So there, there, there's a, there tends to be a lot more self-disclosure uh, because of the developmental stages that kids and, and teenagers are in. But anyway. Uh, but the same guideline needs to be followed, you know, all the, the eight guidelines that are laid out. Okay, let's get back to your questions, patron Kate here. Your specific questions are... I'd be really interested to hear your process of deciding and why you don't want your clients to know certain things about you, but are okay with them knowing others. Well, this is very complicated and without going into, you know, hours and hours of a case by case basis, I'll just say that in general, I've just thought it all out. You know, in my 20 years, I've been asked a lot of different questions and I've disclosed a lot of things and I've thought about a lot of things. And I, so I just have a, I just have a pretty good idea about what I, and I have a sense also about new things that sort of 
emerge in me as an impulse. I have, I've, I have a sense of like where that line is and it, it, it's something that you just gain with experience. So, um, so there's that, uh, you know, for example, I've learned through experience that if a client asks me, if a gay client, gay or lesbian or bisexual client asks me what my sexual orientation is, I automatically answer that I'm hetero. Um, now, in one way of thinking, I would never reveal that to, to, to anybody because it's not their business and it doesn't matter. But in another way of thinking, when I have, when I've worked with LGBTQ clients and they're looking at me like, are you on my side or are you not on my side? There's always that question, right? Because there are therapists who are not on their side. And so one, a quick way for them to ask that question is to be like, well, maybe he's gay. Cause if he's gay, then he's on my side. That's sort of the shorthand thinking. Well, if I say to them, I don't answer that question, then they're left on, on, on a lurch. Plus it's sort of a power play. Cause it's like, well, I know you're gay, but I'm not going to tell you what I am, you know? And so, so I just say, I just say I'm hetero and I say I'm an ally because, you know, the term ally is a, is a you know catchphrase that indicates things to people. I'll talk about my ethnicity too. If, if people want to know, I'll say, oh, I'm half Japanese, half, I'm half Japanese American, half white American. Um, okay. Another question that patron Kate asks is, do you ever find it hard to hold back from relating? I think what she's meaning is, do you ever find it hard to hold back from just self-disclosing things as a way of trying to relate? And my answer to that is, yeah, occasionally. But probably more often when I was a novice, because I wasn't yet used to the role of being a therapist, and I didn't have an inner sense of where that line was between self-disclosing and not. Um, and so, uh, and plus, in, in the beginning, when I was a therapist, I didn't know how to empathize very well. <laughs> I had empathy in me, but I didn't know how to communicate it as well as I did later. And so I find that now I can empathize pretty easily. So, you know, I have an, an impulse to, to relate to somebody. Um, and, and I'm like, well, but I, I don't know if I should self-disclose. And so I, I have other ways of relating. I have other ways of providing empathy in that situation now after 20 years. Okay. Another question from patron Kate, patron Kate. Do you have any stories from when you ended up regretting sharing or not sharing something? Uh, my answer to that is nothing comes to mind. There, there's, there's rarely a noticeable consequence to disclosing, or at least the disclosures that I involve uh, myself in. But I do have vague memories of wishing that I had thought it out more. Um, you know, I'd think about it. It's like, well, I know there's been times in the past when I thought, I think I went on a little too long for that one, or I probably, probably there was probably a moment in there when I was more just venting my own feelings than really just self-disclosing to help the client. <laughs> um, so, but I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, um, but I'm positive that it's happened for sure. But I don't, I don't regret it. I don't go, Oh my God, that was terrible. It, it's more like, um, well, you know, don't do that again. <laughs> um, I suppose if it, if it was really bad, I would just tell the client, look, I'm sorry. You know, I sort of made that about me, but I don't think I've ever done that. All right. Another question she asks is, what do you do when clients ask you about yourself? Well, when people ask me questions that I don't want to answer, I very politely tell them 
I, I say something like, you know, say a client, you know, say I have a teenage client and he's like, so have you ever used heroin before? <laughs> or, you know, have you ever, um, I don't know, I don't know, some something I'm just not willing to reveal. You know, I'll say something like, you know what, that's a great question and it makes sense that you're curious about that. But it, it's, I have to be really rude right now and, and tell you that as a therapist, I, I don't talk about my personal life in that way. And I'm really sorry about that. It's, you know, it's, it's a very weird thing that therapists don't answer questions, and I'm sorry about that. So I hope you'll forgive me. So I, that's what I say. I say something along those lines because it is really rude, you know, and because and a lot of therapists, a lot of, you know, supervisors will say things like, well, you know, you should tell your clients, you should say like, well, it's interesting that you want to know that. You know, why do you want to know that information? Or, um, you know, why are you asking that question? Or would it make you feel more comfortable if you knew the answer to that question? You know, to answer the question with a question. And I find that to be a, a threat to the relationship with the client and condescending. Because a lot of these questions often happen in the beginning of the therapy. So it could be in the first few sessions. And so the relationship, you know, might not be able to handle that kind of rudeness. And so I just say, look, I'm really sorry. It's really rude of me, but I, I don't answer those questions as a therapist. Plus, it's, it's a little bit of a crazy-making situation. You know, a client asks you a question, and then you just answer that with a question. Because, uh, you know, a lot of people don't know that us therapists have this rule that we don't talk about our personal lives. So they might go like, why in the world did he answer that question with a question? And like, what's the, like, we're hoping that they get the picture, like, look, I don't talk about my personal life, but they might not, you know, this, this might not be a cultural thing that they get. Another question patron Kate asks here is, do you correct them when they've assumed something about you that isn't true? Uh, my answer to that is, is it depends. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but um, it you know if I think of some examples off the top of my head, it I, I seem to remember some people thinking I was of a particular religion when I wasn't of a particular religion, and I didn't think it was necessary to correct them. And and I I see I don't remember the particular client off the top of my head, but I do remember one time going like, well, that, that's interesting that that client thinks that I am of that religion. I'm of their religion is what they think. And, and they're not, and I'm, and I'm not lying to them. I'm just like not correcting them. <laughs> and, um, you know, and you know, maybe the client just really needs to believe that about me. And so I, so I, I just didn't comment on it. I just, I just sort of let it, let it go past me. Um, but there are other times when people assume things about me. Like I remember, uh, a lot of the teenagers would assume that I was this goody two shoes or something. <laughs> and I, I would, uh, d depending on the situation, I felt it necessary to disabuse them of that assumption. You know, it's just like, Hey, just to let you know, I've been around the block a few times. It's what you're talking about. Isn't foreign to me, you know, just, just because some teenagers just have this blanket point of view that all adults, particularly professionals are um, these sort of caricatures and, um, don't know what it was like to be a teenager in trouble, you know? Um, another question patron Kate asks here is, has self-disclosure ever worked in your favor or been held against you? For example, do you find that struggling parents tend to like knowing they are seeing a therapist who has kids as well? Um, Mike, uh, you know, held against me, I would say that's extremely rare, but, um, 
there have been self-disclosures that I have given to, say, borderline or narcissistic clients that have been used against me for sure. But that's just that's just part of the treatment, you know. There, um, you know, for example, with borderline clients, again, because as I talk about in many episodes, because they were abandoned as children and, and made to feel worthless and made to feel alone. And it was very scary to them and very traumatizing to them. Then as they enter into a deeper relationship with me, they will start to worry that I'm going to abandon them. And they're going to start to worry that I'm going to reject them. And they're going to worry that I secretly hate them. And so a lot of things will get targeted with those feelings. And so I might disclose something to them like, yeah, you know, sometimes when you're talking, it, it, it's, um, it's intimidating. So, so say I say something like that to them. I decide that it'd be good for them to know that sometimes they say things that intimidate me and I, and I get a little scared of them and their emotions or something. You know, say, say I reveal that and I, I've determined that that's a good idea to reveal. Well, you know, down the line, they... In, in a moment of panic, so say it's, you know, 10 sessions later, and they have this reemergence uh, of their trauma, and somehow I trigger their trauma regarding abandonment, they might say like, oh, so am I intimidating you again? Is, is that what's happening right now? And, and, and you're just like pushing me away because I'm intimidating? Is that what's happening? So they are using my self-disclosure, quote unquote, against me. But really, it's just they're using uh, their suffering and they're, they're, they're asking me questions to give me the opportunity to clarify to them that I am not going to abandon them. Essentially, you know, they're, they're testing me to see if, um, if I'm going to abandon them or not. And so I just say, um, yeah, you know, sometimes I do feel intimidated by you, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to reject you. And it doesn't mean that I think, bad thoughts about you. It just means that sometimes I, I get intimidated by you. I get intimidated by a lot of people, you know, and you know, but, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna leave you and I'm dedicated to you. And, um, and the intimidation isn't, isn't really that bad. It's like on a two of a scale from one to 10, you know, that kind of talk. Okay. Um, and then you also ask Kate, uh, patron Kate, does social schools ever work in my favor? And I would say, yeah, all the time. <laughs> Uh, that's the that's the whole point of self disclosure is to try to uh, you know use it to the benefit of the therapy. Okay, so what's the bottom line here? The bottom line about self disclosure is that there is clear empirical evidence that self disclosure helps the relationship, which has been associated with improved outcomes. So it's science based treatment to self disclose. Another bottom line is that each therapist needs to decide for themselves based on their approach and their client population and uh, their comfort level. They need, to def- they need to decide for themselves what sort of self-disclosures they want to involve, you know, based on their approach, based on their client population and based on what they're comfortable sharing. And so, it, so there's no universal prescription for self-disclosure. It's really uh, each therapist has their own kind of deal. Another bottom line is that each therapist needs to engage in an ongoing process of figuring out how to use self-disclosure by educating themselves, by getting supervision, by getting consultation, 
by going to personal therapy, by listening back to your sessions. When you listen to the audio or the video of your sessions, you're like, oh, I just self-disclosed that thing, you know, so you can evaluate that. Um, each therapist needs to have a system of making decisions, you know, uh, they need to have a system of guidelines like the ones I described above, and they need to have a system for evaluating their disclosures. So it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not something like, well, you know, I self-disclose or I don't self-disclose. It's, it's something that is a very con- complicated contemplative practice that requires a lot of education, a lot of supervision, a lot of experience and, and a system, not just like a, a shallow, you know, yes or no question to that. And the final bottom line is that anyone who quote unquote frowns at self-disclosure um, in general is a hack, you know, <laughs> only hacky therapists, in my opinion, frown on self-disclosure in general. Now, again, if that particular person doesn't like to self-disclose themselves, then great. They're missing out on a huge opportunity for the therapy, but fine. That's what they don't want to do. But when, but when they frown on other people for self-disclosing, I just have to say they're a hack and they don't know what they're talking about. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself, patrons, because you deserve it. (laughs) 